Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce. Welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. Today's guest is Dagny. Dagny is a founding member of the Peak Resilience Project. I interviewed her co-founder, Kiara, just the other day. So Dagny, like Kiara, is a young woman who lived life as a man. And this particular woman, Dagny, actually um, went on hormonal therapy. Now, we talk about how she got into being trans and how she came out of being trans and the lessons that she learned along the way. And this is all framed within the context or within the analogy of a hero's journey. And we talk about literature and we talk about narrative. And this, I believe this adds another angle to this particular way of going through life. Now, not everybody who is trans is off base in being trans and not everybody who is wanting to be trans is necessarily thinking about their future, especially young people. This whole series is just for us to be able to talk about these things. Everybody has their own unique experience. I'm not really trying to come down one way or the other, other than the way that would say, let's slow down. Let's talk about these things. Let's let people have their experience, but let's not push them into some life altering form of medication or medical intervention. I'm going to get out of the way. Here's Dagny. So whose brainchild is peak resilience? Who's the, who's the one who came up with the idea? Well, like Kiara said in her interview, we had some mutual friends that we were all connected through, but like the first we ever met each other in real life was, uh, mid to late January when we actually got together to form this project. Hmm. So it was kind of our mutual friends ideas at first. And then when we got there, they were like, here, why don't you run with this idea and see what you can do with it? Hmm. Um, but we definitely can't take credit for the idea in the first place. So people put you up to this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad they did. You know, like I've been meaning to do something bigger about it for a long time. Um, and this was just a really great kind of diving board to get mm -hmm. into it. Um, so what would you like to talk about? Do you want to talk about um, being trans, uh, going through that process, kind of like what I talked with with Kiara? Or do you, where would you like to go? I mean, I would love to talk about kind of the impetus behind both deciding to be trans and then deciding to detransition. I think that those are two really interesting bookends for a person's life who's gone through, you know, initially identifying as trans when they're a young teenager, and then when they're a late teenager or they're 20, deciding to detransition. I think the whole, what starts and ends the process mm. is most interesting to me. Mm -hmm. um, but like, how, what is, what is your intention for this? No, that'd, that'd be great. So okay. um, how long of a period do you would you say you were trans trans identified 15 to 19 but it, okay. it kind of mutated when i was 15 uh i was identifying more as non-binary mm -hmm. and then when i was 19 i took some baby steps um to get out of the identifying as trans like when i detransitioned i initially went by they for a little while mm -hmm. um and i had this kind of non-binary idea of myself but I just fell apart, and I just went back to going by she, you know. Okay. <laughs> the facade dropped. Huh. So were you, um, at 15, probably 14, 15, did you start to go into, like, that gray area or that demilitarized, degenderized zone 
of the non-binary? Was it to move towards being more masculine or being perceived as masculine, or was it to uh, move away from being feminine and being seen as female? I mean, both, really. Okay. I think that I think it was the same spectrum. I wanted to get away from fe- being female, and I wanted to move towards being male. Hmm. Like, I never wanted to be trans. I just wanted to be male. Yeah. But being trans was as close as I could possibly get to that. Huh. And is trans, um, for you, did you ever, when you were trans, were you male, or did, were you still kind of in this trans... Uh, category like in the way that you felt and I mean I kind of consider myself like the first and a half wave of like young people transitioning and that was in a sort of era of transgender issues on social media where I was accepting of the fact that I was female but I acknowledged my gender identity is male And I think that that gradually moved towards a more like, if you identify as trans, then you have always been the gender and sex that you identify as. But I wasn't part of that. Okay. I was much more, yes, I'm female, but my mind is wrong. You know, my mind is actually male. Yeah. So what introduced you to the concept of being non-binary and being, uh, wanting to move into being a male? Oh, definitely social media was a big part. But in terms of actually sort of being propelled into wanting to be male, you know, the sort of impetus behind that was, I think, fiction. You know, I was a very quiet kind of internal kid, and I I think I lived mostly through the fiction that I consumed. Hmm. And back then, I don't think that the female characters I was reading were really they didn't resonate with me. Like, I didn't identify with them. I I was actually thinking about this when I was watching your interview with Kiara. You had that really interesting point where you brought up ancient archetypes. You know, you're talking about Mm. Mars or Ares, the god of war, and how all these ancient stories provide us with examples of masculine and feminine impulses and drives and personalities. I thought that was really interesting. I guess a great point, but also I think that storytelling... For the majority of history has come from male perspectives, particularly when we look at the stories that have that come from an ancient time, yeah. but have lasted up until this day. Yeah, that have been like, preserved. Yeah, like you think about ancient authors like Homer and Hesiod and Apollinaris, and they were writing at the same time that their contemporary Aristotle was saying, like, women are just deformed men. Hmm. You know, the female body is an incomplete male body. I think that that's sort of the misogyny of storytelling, Mm. I think, has lasted to this very day where, you know, I can't think of a single female character I ever identified with when I was a child or as or when I was like a teenager. I've always just found male characters more complex and interesting. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So when like there's a, a brash of kind of Hollywood version of female empowerment, which is the female action hero, which is mm-hmm. just a swapping out like the action hero with a with a woman. Does that does that um, make sense to you as uh, how do I formulate this question? Do you think that that's uh, just overlaying the female body onto the male archetypal uh, structure of action and stuff? Does that um, resolve 
for you, like being identifying or seeing yourself in that role? Uh, if I understand what you're saying, I would say that the female action heroes of lots of like modern big block, big box Hollywood movies are really boring. Hmm. You know, I would say that they're kind of the the manifestation of the like strong female character. And that's kind of my problem is that we're always talking about how she's a good female character, but we never say things like, oh yeah, he's a great male character. It's mm. just, he's a great character. Yeah. So I think it's that kind of women in fiction exist in this bubble of being first and foremost defined by being female. Mm. You know, males, male characters get stories beyond just being male. Yeah. They get backstories and complexities and flaws that aren't about and character arcs that aren't about like being men just being men in yeah. in a way so that that is one critique um that um was brought up in a discussion that i had with jane claire jones who's a f feminist scholar in the uk um at least she's critiquing philosophy and saying that when we talk about the human like what's unstated is that we're usually talking about the male human. Like the male is just the, the standard. Um, and then we, we replace that with the human. Um, or we, we figure that that's just the human when the female entity is uh, like a deformed male in one respect or another. Um, and a lot of the stories, if I hear what you're saying, a lot of the stories that you come across that center around female characters, it usually has to do with their femaleness, not necessarily beyond that. Yeah. Well, yeah, like it reminds me of a course that I took in my first year of college that was really good, but like I had some issues with hmm. where we discussed, um, I think it was must, it must have been like over 25 texts that were, if not famous, they were at least formative works of literature, both fiction and nonfiction. And they all revolved around the theme of the antihero. And of course, it was like a liberal college campus. So we had our like female and POC authors. And of these over 25 books, we had four that were written either by or about women. Mm -hmm. And so they were ostensibly about female antiheroes. I remember them being very lacking because, again, these mm. characters, these female characters, they're, the manifestation of them being antiheroes came from them being women. So we read, like, Sappho. which like, A, how can you even analyze Sappho? We have, like, maybe 10% of her work. Yeah. And the idea was that she was an anti-hero simply because she was writing as a woman in this age of extreme misogyny. Or we read like The Bell Jar and Medea. And while I love Medea, these are both works about how women are anti-heroes because they shirk their female role in society. Okay. You know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I completely agree with you. I think that default is male. Mm -hmm. We read so many great male antiheroes in that class, but all the female ones I found were very lacking. Huh. Is and this this is a question that I've I, I think I've had in the back of my head in, in speaking with you and um, other um, female um, to male and uh, de sisters and, and trans trans men um, is that in a way it almost seems like on an archetypal level that the the young woman that decides to go on the, the adventure of uh, becoming male, um, it's almost as it's almost like a hero's journey. It's like uh, uh, like like uh, coming to terms with one's maleness and and like how am I the hero and, and actualizing 
that. There, there's, there's some sort of narrative structure or a plot arc um, of heroism, of striking out into the unknown, of, of um, like reckoning with one's individuality and kind of like fighting society at the same time. Like there's, there's elements of a, of a mythology or a mythological playing field on that. And I don't mean that to reduce um, the complexity of any given person that, oh, totally, that's going yeah. on that. There's just, there's some sort of narrative uh, structure um, to that. Um, and I wonder if bringing that up, um, do you see your embarking on uh, becoming male um, as an adventure and how did you strike out into that and I don't know about an adventure but it was definitely I can see where you're going with this idea that it was a narrative because I think that that's you know that's kind of one of the reasons why we're doing this project in the first place is to upset the homogeneity of like mm. the trans conversation you know it's all about this one route to happiness and that's affirmative action you know, that's getting kids puberty blockers and hormones and surgeries. And then finally, at the end of this journey, you'll be happy. Mm. I think that that's the narrative that's yeah. being sold. And yeah, so I think that being a detransitioner is a bit of an upset to that narrative. But I think it's an upset that we sorely need just to have more ability to converse freely about this subject. Yeah. You know? In a way, you, you're kind of uh, an anti-hero. Um. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> That's always what I've wanted to be. Like, <laughs> thanks. Um, so um, how far did you go with uh, transition? Uh, did you involve the medical? Um, oh, industry? definitely. Like, you can tell by my voice. You know, yeah. I was on, uh, I started hormones when I was 17, I was like six months from turning 18. And that was after a long time of breaking my parents down to let me get on hormones. I was on them for two years and a couple months until I decided to detransition. Hmm. How was that, getting on uh, the male hormone? It was exciting. I remember being very nervous when I first, when I went to my first appointment. Um, I think I interpreted those nerves as like excitement, you know, because finally everything that I had ever wanted was mm. coming true and it was super um, validating in a way. Uh, mostly I remember being okay with it. Like, I think after that first shot, it became sort of routine. It became a like, just sort of a part of my life that was no longer this thing that I had mm. been looking for searching for and hoping for for so long it just became this thing that I did mm -hmm. what was it like I, on the other side of the looking glass then yeah I remember you know before I went on hormones thirsting after all the changes like the deeper voice and the like easier ability to gain muscle mass and like slimmer face and then when those changes started happening in real life I was kind of like Oh, this this is okay. Like this is cool. I'm cool with this, hmm. but it definitely didn't have the, you know, relevatory sort of impact on yeah. me that I had expected it to. Hmm. So it was transformative, but not in the way that you expected. I think in the way that I expected, just it didn't have the effect, like the emotional effect on me 
than oh, I expected. Okay. Yeah. And um, so you said that social media is kind of what um, prompted you as well as reading, reading fiction and kind of lusting after being, I'm putting words in your mouth, um, <laughs> lusting after being an interesting character or, yeah. or wanting to be uh, an interesting character. And, and what were the properties about the male that you wanted that you found lacking in yourself or in the way that society treated you? I mean, I think it's just, you have so much more, or at least I perceived so much more independence in male characters. And I don't mean that in like a, oh yeah, she's a strong independent woman kind of way. It's just that you get to exist without being constantly defined by your female counterparts. You know, like you were saying earlier, men get to be people. Women are just women. Hmm. And that's how we get to exist in society, I think. And that was certainly how characters existed in the fiction that I was consuming, hmm. um, where all these female characters revolved around the men around them. Um, I, but yeah, independence, just like the hmm. ability, the permission to be violent like, I was reading a bunch of hard-boiled noir fiction when I was, like, 15, 16, you know, like Jim Thompson, James Elroy. And I loved how ugly and, like, nasty the male characters could be. And, you know, in that kind of, in those kind of stories, the women are always, like, the sexy femme fatales and shit like that. And I was yeah. like, mm, I'm not really interested in that. So just the ability to be a bad person, hmm. you know? The and ability to complex and complicated and how did you perceive how do you perceive um the male villain as opposed to the female villain like when a when a woman is depicted as being a bad person is there something lacking in that or something not as attractive or the way that she goes about being bad is different than the way that a man goes about being that bad i would say that i'm probably being a little bit unfair because i feel like i'm uh generalizing a lot of fiction mm -hmm. but I do think that in many ways when the woman when the female character is bad it's because again like Medea like mm -hmm. Sylvia Plath in the bell jar or whatever her name is in the bell jar she is bad because she doesn't want to be a woman or at least she doesn't want this female role in society mm -hmm. and more than that she upsets her female role in society simply by redefining herself to the men around her. Hmm. So in Medea, you know, she shirks her role as the sort of keeper of domestic tranquility. You know, first she kills all of her blood family, and then she kills her children and abandons her husband. Hmm. And so it's her upsetting this role as wife and mother, hmm. not upsetting this role as something else in society that isn't solely defined by being female. Does that hmm. make sense? Yeah. I wonder if that being female isn't intimately tied to uh, responsibility. Like there's a certain responsibility of the woman to produce and nurture um, and maintain the family. And if that, having that weight, having that responsibility disallows one to be really, to roam around, to be free, you kind of have to be the center of the world in a way, uh, which is really constraining center of the world I think almost might be giving it too much hmm. credit I would say almost just center of the household okay you know because again it's the men that get to go out in the world it's Odysseus um hmm. like actually 
now that I'm thinking about it, I would say a really good if I'm going to provide kind of a an opposition, um, an example of an opposition. I would say another a really good female antihero from ancient Greece would be Antigone, because her role in that play doesn't revolve around her being a female. Hmm. It revolves around her being a grieving family member caught in the middle of a blood feud. Mm-hmm. It's not she's a woman and it's she's a person and this is what she's dealing with. Yeah. It seems and the impression that I'm getting is that your your transition was more about you than about society in a way. So far, this is what we've talked about. But it was more about self-actualization rather than uh disliking how society perceives you or like I guess like insofar as society's expecting something from the female um, and you want to shirk those things but like there's just this edge to what you're saying or this undercurrent of, of it more being about like you realizing something about yourself rather than um, I, I, I'm saying this wrong but we're, it doesn't seem like you were, uh, it, you were mad at society so much as like you wanted something for yourself. Is I think that... the thing is, I get what you're saying. I think that the thing is, is that I was mad at society, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize it at the time. I wasn't hmm. cognizant of it. And I think you spoke about this with Kiara. You can't really separate mm. self-perception with social perception. You, know, you don't exist in a vacuum the way that you see yourself, especially at 15 comes so much from how other people see you, from how the people around you see you. I don't really know if you can hmm. rightfully separate those two. So did you, did you uh, what was kind of the resistance that you experienced when you embarked on this? Uh, I keep on thinking, I keep, we keep on speaking in uh, heroic <laughs> terms. This is kind of like an, an odyssey. But. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but what you was the resistance, mean, like, like familial and social? Oh, I mean, my parents definitely weren't on board with it at first. Like, I came out to them as, like, bisexual at the same time as I did uh, transgender. And they were super cool with me being bi. You know, they're they're still super cool with it. Um, But when I came out as, when I first came out as non-binary, they were kind of like, uh, okay. Mm. We don't really know what you're talking about, but, like, okay, that's neat, I guess. What year is this? Hmm? What year is this? I was 15 in 2011. Okay. 2012. Um, I was born in 96, so like it would have been my sophomore year in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when me being non-binary mutated into mm-hmm. me being trans, and that came with, like when I was non-binary, I didn't really think a lot about medically transitioning. But when I full when I went full on trans and I was like, call me he him, like I hate my name, mm. I want to go by a different name. That was when they were like, okay, we need to sit down and talk about this because okay. you're talking about making medical changes to your body and you're 16 now. Mm. Um, so I just remember there were. I've never had a fully poor relationship with my parents. You know, we still loved each other, even when I was going through all this, but we definitely had our share of Mm. fights. Um, In terms of outside my family, I didn't really experience that much resistance. Again, when I was, when I came out to my teachers and Mm. the rest of my high school um, in, it was 
the summer before my senior year, so I still would have been 16, uh, everyone was like chill. You know, I think, again, that was kind of before everything about being trans blew up. Mm -hmm. So I think the teachers didn't quite know what to do about it, Mm -hmm. but they were still referring to me as he and, you know, calling me by my preferred name and that kind of thing. So I don't really remember much in the way of resistance. Hmm. So was was your sexuality, um, like Kiara says that she diagnoses herself with, with some sort of internal, uh, internalized homophobia. Um, was, what, what's the relationship between like who you were attracted to and, and who you want to be in the world on a Actually, gender level? I really don't remember my sexuality playing like a huge role mm. in it. I've always been fine with being bisexual. Like I think hmm. I can recall having crushes on girls in elementary school when I didn't have the word bisexual to like, tell me what I was mm-hmm. or to like at least have some sort of label but I mm. really couldn't say if that affected me much I dated a guy in high school and I remember not really liking thinking of myself as the girl in the relationship mm, okay. um, and this was before I came I come out uh, as trans this was before I had come out even as non-binary except for like my closest friends mm. um what is non-binary for you? Oh, <laughs> what is non-binary? Like, <laughs> for me, it was a, like, oh, my God, dude. I identified as tri-gender. Which tri? Meant that, tri. Like Poseidon which meant or that, something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that meant that I was, like, both a girl and a boy and something else. You know, that was how I okay. logicked myself into it. That was how I rationalized it. Okay. So is it the ability to be uh, either male or female or is it is it a both more than a neither or is it the ability to change like that gender fluid kind of thing? It's all of the above. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that non-binary is an umbrella within an umbrella. You know, you have trans and then underneath you have non-binary and then underneath non-binary you have try and buy and agender and gender fluid like you're saying so yeah. it's like that's a whole thesis right there talking about what non-binary is yeah so were you using that label in order to allow yourself space to uh, i guess discover and, and <clears throat> experiment um or was there like something kind of fetishistic about like wanting to be non-binary was there something like rebellious or kind of sexy about like having this identity or this label i don't know about rebellious but it was fun for Hmm. sure like i i spoke about this in um peak resilience's social media roundtable where when i first found this word trigender and like by extension non stop it sorry (laughs) and by extension like non-binary and bi-gender and transgender and all that i was like oh this is fun. Like it felt like hmm. a game in a way. It mm-hmm. felt like a costume that I could yeah. put on. And for a while it was fun. And I enjoyed like thinking of myself as more than female. Hmm. But hmm. when I was like, um, I think I'm going to start calling myself trans and fully invest myself into trying to be male. That hmm. was when it stopped being as much fun. 
you know, that was not as enjoyable, I would say. What, what initiated this, um, that next step? I think it was looking more into being trans. You know, around this time, I found those videos that Kiara was telling you about, the like FTM timeline transitions. And there was something just about those that I was like, it just kind of possessed me in a way, you know? I saw all these like young, awkward girls who were obviously super uncomfortable with themselves getting to become new, like cool, glitzy, attractive men. And there was just, you know, that was, I wanted that. I think that that was just, it, hmm. the ball got rolling. It was just very conducive from non-binary to trans. And that meant a lot of depression. That meant a lot of, I think, real gender dysphoria. Okay. Like rapid onset, certainly. But I think it was real. So it, it, it started, uh, it, it almost seems like there was a feedback loop that started. You initiated this process and it was fun and you're kind of in this playing ground, kind of like in a RPG, kind of like inventing yourself and playing with different uh, character stats or whatever. Um, and then it, you started to take it seriously and the more seriously you took it, the more it impacted you. Like you said, like you started to experience depression and then uh, gender dysphoria. Yeah, the feedback loop idea is definitely there. I think mm. that that's very, that was very real in my experience. Cause again, it was like the worse I felt, the more I would pursue mm. this idea of being trans and this future of being trans. And then, you know, being more inundated with that kind of narrative just made me more depressed and more dysphoric. Mm. So it was, it was an unending cycle. Definitely. What was the, how did your dysphoria manifest? Like when you looked at yourself in the, in the mirror or when you saw your shadow oh, or how? It was, I mean, it was all body. Like I did, I, I did a lot of self-harming when I was, you know, 15, 16. I think it was kind of like a, that was when my body was really starting to develop and really starting to look more womanly. And I think it was kind of a like, well, fuck you, body. Like, look at what you're doing to me. Look at what I can do to you. Like, I can make you bleed and bruise. And that was very, like, that was huh. sort of how my dysphoria manifested. Would you, like, imagine yourself with a, a male genitalia? Or did you want to just shirk the female uh, characteristics? I went back and forth for a long time about whether I ever wanted to go through like bottom surgery. So I can't remember myself ever like imagining myself with male genitalia. I think it was more that I imagined myself as male from the get go, you know, hmm. like the, the secondary sex characteristics that I was developing, you know, like breasts and hips were just like, hmm. I felt so disconnected from them. They didn't feel like hmm. they were mine exactly they didn't feel part of my body i didn't know why they were there wow i was just very mm, confused and sad <laughs> yeah and and did you did you start you say like you were looking towards a future did you start to develop like this uh, ideal self 
like this male persona. Yeah. And, yeah. and how did you, how did you start to manifest that? Did you like, I guess you, you nailed, named him, um, and had like, uh, th- what I'm trying to get into is like, what's the relationship between you and this male you? I think the male me existed entirely inside my head. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a way that I think I wanted to act. I wanted to act more masculine, but I've always been bad at that. Like, I don't even think I passed that well when I was on testosterone huh. just because I had like a more feminine way of moving and speaking and acting. I don't know. Hmm. So I think that that male me existed in a fantasy world. Does that answer your question? Am I like... Well, I, and insofar as you develop the, this, you pursue... It's like, it's almost... Well, what I'm thinking about is that um, with autogynophilia, autogynophiliacs, which is the uh, male to female, um, there's a certain subset. This is a diagnosis. And of course, well, everything that we're talking about is controversial, but this is kind of controversial. But it seems like uh, there there's a... For men, a certain subset of men... Um, they start to uh, become very attracted to themselves as a woman. Uh, and th- they have fantasies about that and they want to manifest that. And they, they almost, I, I heard it, I think it was on Twitter, they, they fall in love with this female version of themselves. And a couple months back, there was this video that went viral about like Superman, this uh, trans woman in a GameStop yeah. gets called <laughs> Sir and flips out. And somebody explained that is that this person, ha- it's like they, they're married to this female version of themselves. And so when that female version of themselves is insulted, they become the man to protect like the bride. So it seems like there's this, uh, there's this kind of this duplicity or this relationship uh, between the, the autogynophiliac and, and the image of themselves as a woman. And it's like a love relationship and it's this big marriage. And I wonder, um, with you and Kiara, I don't sense that. It's sense, it seems like there's this other kind of relationship that you have with uh, this pursuit of becoming a, a male. That's, there's something different about that. And I'm just, uh, I just want to kind of understand it more. And that's kind of like where I want to like understand your relationship with becoming a male or, or the, the character of yourself as a male. Right. That's really interesting. Yeah, I would never... I definitely don't think that that male self existed as like another person for me. It was me, but it was me forcing myself into this character. Mm-hmm. Like I, I did like a lot of theater when I was a kid and when I was a teenager. And often it felt like characterizing someone that I was going to go on stage as. Mm-hmm. You know, it was this kind of idea of this is how I should act when I'm putting on this mask. Hmm. So you, do you think that you really ever became this person or was no, it all think, just an extended um, acting method acting? I think it was extended acting. Like that was definitely one thing that I was really hmm. angry at myself for when I decided to detransition was oh. like I was sick of lying to myself and lying to others and making others lie for me. Like that was really I felt super ashamed about that. Wow. Um, so yeah, I think it was really just me putting on, like we've talked about before, a character. 
and trying to become that character in real life. Hmm. And what, was there something necessary about this? And, and I'm asking this in the question of you, you folks, you ladies uh, with peak resilience are trying to give avenues and, and uh, voice to an experience and um, make it easier for other people who are going through the same situation to really think deeply about their experience. Um, I guess one thing that you might be saying is that um, what, what are you trying to give, bring light to? Um, and how would somebody in your position right now, uh, like where you were a few years ago, how do you think that your story would help them or how would you hope that, that your experience could, could help them? Looking back at myself when I was 15 or more like 16, I honestly can't say whether or not being more exposed to detransitioners narratives would have turned me away from it. Yeah, I was hell bent. But I think that the thing that we really want to accomplish as peak resilience is, at least part of what we want to accomplish is twofold. And that's A, you know, on one hand, opening up this whole conversation about transitioning and about providing at least some sort of alternative option to experiencing gender dysphoria that's not just immediately affirmation and medical transition. But I think it's also about just opening up how kind of the other side, like I can sometimes feel a bit like a pawn when this more gender critical radical feminist side talks about detransition. Okay. You know, when you see a lot of gender critical sites talk about um, women who have medically transitioned and then detransitioned, they use a lot of words like mutilated and ruined. Mm-hmm. And it feels very like mm-hmm. cautionary tale. You yeah. know, like don't let your daughters transition because they might detransition. And do you want your daughter to have a voice like that? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it can sometimes feel a little bit dehumanizing. I think overall, we just want to because mental health is such an individual experience, Mm -hmm. we want to open up the conversation about detransition as being a new way to Mm. cope with gender dysphoria, or at least not a new way to cope, but something that Mm. shows that gender dysphoria isn't going to be there for your entire life in some cases. Yeah. You know? And what, was there a a moment that, your peak trans moment that started <laughs> turning you back around to to accepting yourself as female and, and desisting? There were so many. It took me about six months. Um, when I first started initially thinking about detransitioning to when I actually, like, took my last shot of testosterone, I was like, okay, that's it. Like, I'm done. Hmm. It took me about six months. And... That was such a process. Hmm. Um, there were so many things that really made me question. Like, I was still on Tumblr at the time, and there were just so many ideas and beliefs that were cropping up on Tumblr that I didn't agree with. And, you know, it's social media. It's always so black and white when it comes to morality. And it was very like, if you don't agree with this, then, like, you're dead to me. You're evil. Yeah. And there were so many ideas. Like, that was when people started talking about the how like biological sex doesn't exist and how trans men 
weren't socialized female and therefore they never experienced misogyny. I was just like, well, that's fucking stupid. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and um, again, that was like 2015, 2016. That was right around the time that everything started to blow up. Yeah. And I felt like... I felt like there were other avenues where we could be putting our social, economic, hmm. and political backing. Like... um. When I was, all right, this this might go into a tangent here, but like when I was 17 and it was like the beginning of my last year of school, my sister Emma, who was 21 at the time, started showing symptoms of a very serious mental illness. And she was finally diagnosed with bipolar about a year later. And it was just awful. Like she had the, she had a really bizarre case of bipolar she would be fine in the summer months and then from october to like april she would be in the middle of a manic breakdown you know it was horrible it was like she was paranoid and hallucinating and psychotic and talking to the voices in her head and she like physically abused her boyfriend a couple times and so when i was 19 i had just seen for two years now the helplessness that my parents felt you know trying to help Emma you know, doing whatever they could to help Emma mm -hmm. in a system in what I don't even think that we can call a system of mental health care mm -hmm. like we don't have a decent affordable way to deal with people with and I say this literally in Emma's case life-ruining mental illness mm -hmm. you know, there's a reason why 65 to 75 percent of prison inmates both male and female have experienced a traumatic brain injury in their life mm -hmm. jails and prisons have essentially become the new asylums yeah. and if you're anything less than upper class you don't have a fucking hope yeah. of getting any sort of decent affordable mental health care mm -hmm. and that was what was happening with our family and so i think that when i was 19 and already growing sick of the whole trans thing mm. I was just I just thought that all of the social support and economic backing and political movement that was being granted to the trans community in a time of extraordinary mental health crisis could have been better used if mm. diverted elsewhere you know here is one mental illness gender dysphoria out of the rest of the DSM-5 that was actually getting the support that it needed. Hmm. I just thought it was very distressing. So that seems to be it, that it could be some sort of metaphor or analogy to where you're putting your energies as a human being. You're spending so much, and I don't mean this negatively, and maybe this is negative, but spending so much time crafting an identity and pouring yourself into an identity um, that does nothing but change you, doesn't really change the world so much. I agree. I think that that's the really like sad part of the trans issue is that we have so many intelligent young people that are cognizant of so many problems in society and instead of changing society they're changing themselves and they're changing themselves in such a 
miserably capitalistic way. Like there's nothing more capitalist to me than the idea of buying a new identity, buying a new shiny body that's going to finally make you happy instead of actually looking to solve your problems without purchasing anything. You know, I, I just, that was one thing that really like sickened me about my transition was like the idea that I thought that I could actually buy an identity that would make me happy. Wow. Did you, um, this might be personal. I can cut it out. Um, but did you, did you alter your body, uh, top wise? No, I never went through any sort of surgery. I definitely intended to, but it just. Did you do binding then or? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's honestly, I regret binding even more than I regret hormones. Like, really? Yeah. Well, like it's definitely been a process to be fair. Like I'm Mm. a couple months shy of being three years detransitioned and I definitely hated my voice like in the first year and a half, but I actually kind of like it now. But binding has given me like even longer lasting effects than transitioning or you know, taking hormones ever did. Like I used to be on swim team and so I had a decent lung capacity and like a decent ability to hold my breath for a long oh, time. Shit. Even today I can't swim like 25 meters Oh wow! without having to take at least three breaths. It's very it's like, it's like uh, what the Japanese or Chinese uh, aristocratic women with their feet. Oh yeah. Feet binding. Yeah. yeah. So it does have, uh, like, it doesn't just take care of the protrusions. It <laughs> alters the uh, the whole cavity. Yeah, yeah. I actually have, um, like, I have these two dents on either side of my collarbone where I grew around the straps of my binder. Oh, jeez. It's, like, altered my entire, it's altered my skeleton in wow. many ways. And that's just very frustrating, you know, um, because I used to love swim team, and now I can't really do it anymore. Hmm. And what was it like being a man then? Did you like what was it like being a dude and being among dudes? Did you when did you start using the male restroom? <laughs> like what was it like to to be in that society? And like how far did you transition into bro culture? Did you broach bro uh, culture at all? I was certainly never a bro. Okay. I. I hated the male restrooms. I thought that they were really stinky. Like, I did not (laughs) like that at all. But it felt very... I definitely felt like I existed more as an individual. But that might have also been my own self-perception. Like, I think that certainly social misogyny pushed me to transition, but my own misogyny did too. And when I could Hmm. see myself more as a man, I was just more human. To myself I was more huh. more of a person to yeah. myself um, I don't know I was very huh. isolated in many ways so I really couldn't say how a lot of social interaction was affected by me being trans because like I was just super socially awkward as like a 17 year old um, but I think just in general it was not to employ an overused buzzword, but it was very empowering in many ways. Okay. I felt that I could do so many things that I had never been able to do before. Did you have permission to be violent? Did you, like, go around, like, 
harassing people and oh yeah wielding no. a sword and <laughs> no definitely not <laughs> no i just mostly sat in my room and played skyrim all day like <laughs> <laughs> were your characters male or female uh actually i had two and one was male and one was female hmm. so i don't know what that says maybe i just really am trigender like <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's my real truth. Maybe that's my authentic self. <laughs> huh. And so so you said that you went through a process that took about six months to um, desist. What was it like um, initiating a process of accepting yourself as, a, as how you were grown, accepting your DNA, accepting the fact that you're female? I realized how much time and energy I had been wasting on like hating myself. I think that once I kind of got out of this, once I got off Tumblr, I actually felt an ability to think clearly and not wow. be involved in groupthink anymore. And that I think allowed me to do a lot of healthy self-reflection. I had to think about what sort of beliefs my identity was perpetuating. Hmm. And I don't know. I think that I also had to understand what I was doing to myself and what I was saying about myself. I had this weird cognitive dissonance where I claimed to be a feminist, but I was also like, not explicitly, obviously, but I think internally, implicitly, just believed that women were less, you know? And so I had to sort of reconcile well, why do I believe that men and women are the same, but at the same time, I want to be a man? What does that mean for my method of thinking? What does that mean for my beliefs? Hmm. But yeah, mostly I was just like sick of feeling miserable all the time. And I don't know, I just realized that what I thought would make me very happy in life was just like a crock of bullshit. And I didn't want to live with that sort of baggage anymore, that sort of pressure yeah. I was putting on myself. Did you end up doing journaling during this period? Uh, I did for a little while. Um, not regularly, but I did have a journal. Um, I think maybe I wrote in it like, or something. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like you read a lot, so I was writing, I was wondering if you're writing a lot. Oh, I'm the only essays. Like, this was during college. You didn't really oh, okay. have a lot of time for journaling. Yeah. And when when you started to desist and gain time, it seems like you, you gained more resources and time. Where did you end up? Where where did your interests go when it wasn't directed on on the surface of your identity? Where did it end up going for you? I think to actually productive areas. Like my, my grades definitely improved um, going into my going into spring semester of my second year of college and then from then on hmm. I was doing a lot more in, in the way of like art I think it allowed me to have more quality time with my partner you know hmm. I don't know I think it was just it cleared my head hmm. I wasn't in there all the time pretending to be a guy I was able to project my energy and my emotion outward and how was that this is probably too personal again so sorry but like how did that how did desisting change your, how was that for your partner then if, if you had somebody with you during this whole 
period, how did the, the dynamics in the relationship change? You, you can skip this question or not. Oh, no, it's fine. Um, I'm still with her, actually. Um, we, we knew each other in high school hmm. and were friends in high school and then ended up going to the same university. And now we're living together and like intend to hopefully for the rest of our lives. Hmm. And it was just very, I think, beneficial. Like I was so lucky to have someone there that I could speak openly with and just kind of bounce ideas off of. Hmm. You know, when I was considering detransition, I was able to have these really good talks with her about just like what I was feeling and what I was thinking about and just all the issues that I saw with my own identity and with the rest of the sort of trans community with like trans rights activism. I don't know. It was just, I think it strengthened our relationship more than anything. Was your certain, partner uh, in the, the transgender non-binary stuff? Or? She, uh, when I started detransitioning, she confided in me later that like, around that time that I was considering detransition, she was considering identifying as non-binary. Hmm. So she never did, but there was definitely at one time she considered it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating. That's a huge conversation uh, that you had somebody with you during, the, during this process, during this arc. Um, yeah. And I was really lucky too. How how that how that changed the dynamic, and there's got to be just so many different um, uh, things that happened uh, to have somebody there witnessing you. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Like, um, I run I run an Instagram blog where I anonymously post people's stories um, with detransitioning, and I get a lot of people on there saying like. I'm considering detransitioning, but like I'm worried that my partner will mm. like it. Or I'm considering detransition, but you know I don't know how to talk to my partner about it. And hmm. I just again I feel so incredibly lucky to have had someone there that was hmm. willing to listen and willing to engage in a dialogue that is so inflammatory. And you know at the time that I was detransitioning, it was like you couldn't find a single fucking resource on it out there. You know, there was maybe really? one article I found that was basically just like, detransition doesn't exist, like move on. Um, so it was at a very sort of socially isolated time in terms of dealing with being trans and regretting it and not wanting to be trans anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, again, she was, I was really lucky to have her there. Where do you guys see, where do you see the, it's not really a movement, but where do you see the detransition uh, community now? And, and what are the things that you, you want to work on to get it out there? Or how, how embattled are you guys with the hardcore TRAs? I'm not on Twitter. Okay. Jesse and Helena are on Twitter. I think that that's the battleground. So I honestly (laughs) couldn't answer that question because I don't really engage with that kind of thing. But again, we're trying to put out more resources for mostly, you know, teens who are considering 
transitioning. Mm-hmm. I know that again, like I said earlier, like I probably wouldn't have listened to us. Yeah. But with the climate of hmm. you know, detransitioning becoming such a huge topic right now. Yeah. Like I would say that we're in the blow up stage that you know, just being trans was in back in twenty fifteen. Hmm. I just think that there is going to be a bigger opinion shift. Um or at least social response shift. Yeah. I think that that's just going to come when leftist media outlets are willing to talk about this. Yeah. Um, you know, we got like, on that first video of ours, we got like eight different like Christian life blogs or Christian life um, newspapers talking about it. So I'm like, thanks, but no thanks, you know? <laughs> you <We> can't. Prefer... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't look a gift, a gift Christian in the mouth, right? No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, this is this is interesting. I mean, the um, the trans issues are like a, it's a rallying point for this weird mix of gender critical, rad, radical feminists and uh, hardcore conservatives. And, uh, you know, like just a whole swath of people are, are coming, uh, are meeting here. And one of the problems you think you already touched on that is that the detransitioner can just be, end up, uh, end up being a, a pawn, uh, a, a cludgel and stuff. Yeah. So, so it is important that you guys, have your own voice and, and put out the resources on your own, you know, and like as soon as Teen Vogue allows you guys to publish an article, you should get an article in there, you know. <laughs> Hopefully one day, like, <laughs> yeah. It's about presenting the transitioners as individuals. To yes. Me. Like, again, I mentioned mental health is so individual and mm-hmm. I think the reasons behind transitioning and detransitioning can be so individual and we need to have a healthy, broad discussion about mm. this issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what what now? What do you have on your plate next with regards to the Peak Resilience Project? We're recording a podcast tomorrow. Oh, cool. Yeah, that'll be our second. Um, Kiara, Jesse, and Helena are headed to New York uh, in March. I can't make it because I live too far away. Mm. Um, and... Beyond that, we're just going to keep on doing what we're doing until we come up with any new developments. I know that a lot of people have asked to get involved in some way. Either that means like a collaborative, like a collaborative thing. Like we've had podcast interview offers. We've had um, a friend of Jesse and Helena's has offered to do some videography kind of things with us. So it's, it's about right now building a foundation. Yeah. And later expanding, yeah. you know, later bringing more people into the fold. Yeah. I, I would really, I mean, this is way out there, but I really think that retreats would be something that would be really, uh, that you guys could provide that would be really helpful yeah. um, for people. I think like uh, just uh, providing a play, place for people. It seems like a, one uh, theme is that the, the unplugging from that virtual um, group, um, is, uh, and like with Kiara said, she went six months, she went and worked on a horse farm, I think it was. And it seems like you, like you, for whatever reason, you forgot your, t- uh, Tumblr <laughs> passcode or something, yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Um, so providing, providing a group and I think it, a so, it's a social problem insofar as it is a social problem, there's a social, uh, solution or, or a place for that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, I think that this grew online. I think that it's ultimately going to not die online, but it's going to evolve mm-hmm. online. And that's just going to have real world implications ultimately. Do you ever miss testosterone as, as a drug? No, it gave me wicked acne. Like, huh. I don't miss that at <laughs> all. Um, I don't know. Like, no, I remember being a little bit stronger on testosterone. Um, I think it just allowed me to get more musculature. Okay. Um, but ultimately, I really don't miss it. Mm-hmm. I really don't miss, like, stabbing myself in the leg every two weeks either. Oh, yeah. Like, that was kind of a bummer. Um, do, you, do you feel... Do you, do you feel as a woman now or, or as identifying as a woman and embracing yourself as a woman, do you feel that the fears of being less free are alleviated? Do you feel independent? Definitely. I think being trans taught me more about being a woman than it ever did about being a man. You know, I think I realized everything that I had felt uncomfortable about was ultimately making me feel like I didn't want to be a woman you know you're under so much social pressure as a woman to like look a certain way to act a certain way to believe certain things Mm. and after detransitioning I feel amazing like it was honestly I think one of the best things that has ever happened to me because now I don't feel the need to Again, now I don't feel the need to look a certain way. Like, I haven't shaved my legs in two years, and it's been fucking awesome. Like, there's <laughs> like there's no point to it, and I realize that now. Mm. There's no point to looking a certain way just because people say that you should. I don't know. It was, it was very freeing. It was very... It allowed mm. me to definitely feel like my own person for, like, the first time in my life. Yeah, th- and that's what I was uh, kind of thinking about and I brought up earlier it seems like in in a certain sense it seems like a rite of passage that the that the uh that odyssey into the the trans uh uh especially for a young person it's one way of going on some sort of arduous uh process and then you return back home uh, able to accept yourself in a way. And I'm not saying that to make light of it in any respect oh, of the yeah. consequences or something like that, but it seems like it's subconsciously there, there, that that's what the draw of the narrative is, is this, this promise, uh, this, this adventure in a way. Um, I, and again, I apologize if that comes off as. No, 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 definitely. Like I totally agree with you. And it's, going back to your point about the hero's journey, there is a series of steps. You know, there's first social transition, choose your name, choose your pronouns. Then there's hormones or puberty blockers. Then there's surgery. Then there's the end when you're finally happy and you've like slayed the beast or whatever. Yeah. When you can live as this fully formed character. Hmm. In a way, it seems like you kind of rescued the princess in a way of of recognizing that your ideal self isn't is is the is the glimmer but your true self is is the person that you rescued in the end <laughs> the in real way, treasure was the personality i gained along the way that kind of thing like <laughs> i don't know I it just seems like the that that instead of like arriving at the ideal you you returned back to 
the real uh, in, in a way. And and what are you doing with your life now? Like like did you? What are your interests? Are you like into psychology? Like like as you as you say, you learned a lot about this. And how does how do you think that you? What did you gain from this? Like with regards to skills and understanding of people. Um, I. I mean, it's definitely driven me to want to produce better fiction and better works of fiction, better creative works. Like, I write and I draw in my spare time, and it's informed the way that I want to, hmm. like, what kind of impact I want to have on, like, a, like, I'm under no impression that I'm ever going to be, like, a famous fucking author. Yeah. But, like, it's given me more of a creative outlet, I think. Hmm. I don't feel boxed into writing female or male characters a certain way. Um, I don't know. It's... I think it's definitely given me an ability to be more empathetic. Hmm. Like when I was in the whole trans mud pit, like again, morality is so black and white, especially in social media on these circles. And I was fully ready to hate anyone that said any sort of dissenting, that had any sort of dissenting opinion about my identity or about transitioning. And I think now it's much more, I'm willing to be open to debate. I'm willing to be open to talking hmm. openly about issues about detransition and transition. Mm -hmm. Like, again, we hopefully want to bring on trans people onto the Peak Resilience Project in the future on videos or podcasts just to open up the conversation. Um, yeah, I think it, most of anything, it just taught me maturity <laughs> and tommy that like when you're 15 you don't know what the fuck you want hmm. like that i think was probably one of the most lasting lessons that it gave me do you have any um are you optimistic that the medical field will grow up and and not go the path that it's going or do you think that there what do you think we need to do about uh, that because it seems like the the affirmation push is pretty damn dangerous do you agree with that or do you think it'll yes resolve itself naturally or what do we need to do man i think that we need to i mean we can't really do anything about this but ultimately i think that the medical industry has to start caring more about people and not caring more about the money that they make hmm. off people and young people that are suffering hmm. um Again, I think that hormones and surgery are, they're promoted as these quick fixes that'll solve all your problems. But more than anything, they're just making a shit ton of money for people. How much was testosterone for you a month? Oh, that was definitely one of the things that spurred me to detransition. I was spending like 1200 bucks on it a year oh, out of like wow. my student aid money. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's not sustainable. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. can't buy me love you can try though yeah <laughs> you'll learn though <laughs> well cool dagny um do you have like a portal where your writing is or are you just going through the peak transition project is there something i can link people to uh i do have that instagram it's okay. uh at D you said it was anonymous though Oh yeah, it's, well, it's anonymous. People message me anonymously, but oh. I post their stories through my okay. own work. Um, 
let me expose all of my followers to you. <laughs> let me give you like a little black book. Um, and that's at DTrans Stories. It's okay. just one word. Yeah. DTrans Stories. Yeah. I'll send people there. Okay. Thank you. And, oh, yeah. One quick thing. Would you mind us linking uh, these videos on our Twitter? No, not at all. Not at Fantastic. all. No, let's get this out there. Thank you. You guys are doing great work. I really, I really think you, there, there are, there are, there are up and coming groups and you're one of them. There's another group that I'm uh, affiliated with called Transrational, which is uh, a, oh, a yeah. federation of trans people who want to, you know, take the piss out of the TRAs and, and provide, you know, just straightforward talk about this stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you for being open to providing a platform for it. Like, so much liberal hypocrisy needs to, like, really be taken down a peg. Like, (laughs) (laughs) so much of, like, leftist politics these days. I'm like, yes, but also no. Yeah, it's it's boring. Yeah. It's boring. It's just, like, there's so much outrage and then, like, and then vilification. And I'm like, okay, well, you know what? I'm going to make friends. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to make friends. And ultimately, so much vilification. What's that? Is a reason much like anger and outrage, and ultimately nothing ever comes of it, except for Hmm. I think promoting the other guys, like the alienation of the working class from any sort of democratic ideal is what put Trump in the White House. Mm -hmm. But that's just me. (laughs) Yeah, there's a yeah, there's there's the peak, and then there's the nadir, and I think we're I think we're on the upswing. I I do I firmly believe that. Um, and it's people in your, your generation is, uh, learning the hard way. And through that, you guys are gaining a lot of wisdom. And I think you guys have a, have a leg up if I can be a little ageist. No, don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) You ageist piece of shit. Like, (laughs) no, yeah. Thank you so much again. Absolutely. Dagny, you have a good day. I'll let you know when this is up. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much.